Future Revisited is celebrating the beginning of its third season. And we are thrilled to feature Richard Louvre, the author of Our Wild Calling, on our first episode. Richard is the author of The Last Child in the Woods and The Nature Principle, which focus on our relationship to green nature. In Our Wild Calling, Richard Louvre writes about the important relationship we have with animals, both wild and domestic. So thank you for joining us as we start a new year and a new season. My name is Stefan Van Orden, and this is Nature Revisited. So you have some bad weather there. Well, it's a big Santa Ana wind. We've got hurricane force winds in the mountains where we live, and we're watching the wind. Well, I really appreciate you doing this with me. Let's start by talking about where you grew up and how important of a role did animals, both domestic and wild, have in your development? They had far more to do with my development than I knew at the time. I had a dog named Banner that I write about in Our Wild Calling, who was an extraordinary dog. He did things like Lassie does. And he protected animals around us, the smaller dogs, for instance, and he begrudgingly would allow the cat to go out with him to go to the bathroom in the morning. I always thought that he taught me a a kind of ethics. And I mentioned that once when I was a newspaper columnist to an animal behavioralist who dismissed it immediately, said I was anthropomorphizing, romanticizing, all that. While I was doing the research for Our Wild Calling, I became interested in how wolves became dogs. And there's two theories. One is that we domesticated them. Our ancestors did. The other theory is that they domesticated us, that we followed them and watched how they hunted as a pack and learned from that. And we watched their families and how good they were with their families and learned from that. And I ran across some uh, German research that actually makes the case for that. And that, you know, I think probably both of these things are true. They domesticated us. We domesticated them. But the German research actually uses the word ethics. It just seems to me that the ethics that perhaps our ancestors learned from wolves has passed down through tens of thousands of years to my dog Banner and then to me. That's the domesticated side of the influence. And also I spent much of my boyhood with Banner in the woods. Animals and and nature were incredibly important to me. The wild animals, I was really tuned into them. So that hasn't changed. So most of us are probably familiar with you through your book, Last Child in the Woods, and The Nature Principle. Tell us what inspired you to write this book and how they're connected. Well, the prior books, uh, beginning with Last Child in the Woods, they came from really the same inspiration. Last Child, as you know, stimulated a lot of activity over the last more than a decade. There's a kind of movement that has emerged. I like to think Last Child helped uh, stimulate that and move it along to connect children and their families and communities to nature. And it's not only in the United States, it's in China and Brazil and other places I've visited around the world where this really has become a grassroots movement. Now, animals are kind of the next step. Some people have said that humans are the loneliest of the species. 
and that our relationship with animals helps us to create a bond, a relationship that brings us closer to nature. Do you agree with that, and why do you think that is? Well, that's one of the major themes of uh, our wild calling. Human loneliness has gotten the attention of the medical world in the last decade. It's now estimated that more people die or that more mortality attached to the effects of human isolation now, where there's at least as much as obesity and smoking. It's on that level now that it's being said, and this is worldwide, this is particularly true in the United States, but this human isolation loneliness is killing people. It's not only because of suicide. It's also because of all the diseases that are attached to loneliness that happen to be many of the same diseases that are attached to smoking. So this has grown. The case has been made to blame it on social networking, or I like sometimes like to refer to it antisocial networking. So I think that that's, it's kind of too easy to blame that only on that. I make the case in our wild calling that I believe that this is rooted in an even deeper loneliness, in species loneliness. We are desperate as a species not to feel alone in the universe. Why else would we look for Bigfoot? Why else would we look for intelligent life on other planets? Uh, it's because we don't want to be alone in the universe. It turns out we're not. If we pay attention, there's a great conversation going on around us all the time. The more that science knows about how species communicate, the more we realize that there is a great conversation going on, and we're part of that, if we pay attention. And it reduces our loneliness as a species when we pay attention to that. And that's much of the book is about that. Talk about the spiritual connection. How do animals affect the human spirit? Well, much of that is illustrated through the stories in the book by people who have had encounters with wild animals, but also relationships with their pets over time. Paul Dayton, who is a famous oceanographer, told me a story about an encounter he had with a giant octopus that grabbed him on the bottom of the ocean when he was collecting samples. He could not get released from that octopus. Uh, it had 12-foot-long arms. He said people think those are soft and squishy, anything but. And he realized at that point that he was running out of oxygen. And he relaxed, as prey often does in the mouth of, or in the clutches of the predator. There's this strange thing that happens, that there's a kind of relaxation that occurs. He did that. The octopus also relaxed a little bit. And so Paul pushed off the bottom of the ocean with, the, with his, the, the last of his strength. And they went up and up and up together, he and the octopus attached to him, through the column of water. And as, the, as they went up, he could feel the octopus's razor-sharp beak moving around his neck until he was staring into its eye. And they made eye contact. Now, this is a hardcore scientist. But he said... At that point, I think we made our non-aggression pact. And he says that with a sense of humor, but at that point, when that happened, they hit the water, both of them, and Paul ripped off his mask and looked down, and the octopus was still looking at him, and they, made, they were still having eye contact. And then the octopus turned and started to descend into the water, into the darkness. What does Paul do? He 
He puts his mask back on, and he dives after the octopus, only with one breath of air, and he chases it down. They spiraled each other as they went down deeper and deeper. Totally ran out of breath and went back to the surface. And I said, Paul, why in the world would you do such a thing? He said he doesn't know. He does know he didn't want those moments to end. And he used the word spiritual. And this is a hardcore scientist. Again and again, the people who tell the stories in in, in this book talk about something happening between them and another animal that they can't explain. One of the stories is a little boy in Toronto. His mother told me that they had a big dog named Jack. And she walks into the living room one day. And her son is stretched out on the carpet with Jack, the dog. And he has his arm around Jack. Mom, I don't have a heart anymore. And she says, what are you saying? And her son said, my heart is in Jack. That permeability, that thing we've felt with our pets, we feel it with other people, but we also feel that with other animals. I tell the story of my own where I was on a lake one day. I, I saw on the shore what I thought were two Vultures, they were not. As I moved up close to them within 20 feet, I realized there were two giant golden eagles. And for what seemed like forever, they would dip down and take a bite of the fish they were eating and then look up at me. Again, that eye contact again and again and again. One of the aspects of these stories that people tell about these encounters is that they go into altered states, that time disappears or bends. That's one of the altered states. I went home that day and told my younger son about it and said, you know, Matthew, whoever I say I am, I'm not. Whoever I was during those moments is actually who I am, and I don't have the words to explain it. I wondered, what is that? What is that I felt? What was that that changed? There was something between us. And I heard that again and again and again from people who tell these stories. There are a lot of stories in your book. So... My question was, why are these stories with our encounters with animals so helpful in our relationship to ourselves and our society? Now, I didn't set out to write a feel-good book, believe me. I mean, there's a lot in the book about the extinction and biodiversity collapse that is quite troubling. But people feel better when they read these stories and they start recognizing the things that have happened in their life that are similar. And then they start noticing the birds outside their window that they didn't notice before, and it makes them feel better. This is particularly true right now during COVID, during the pandemic. It's been widely reported, and I've reported it as well, that people are recognizing their need for nature right now more than they did perhaps just a year ago or two years ago. You know, in isolation, you begin to look out the window. If you can't get to the park, you value the park more. And then you look at your backyard. Then you look at the animals nearby that you haven't even noticed before. What was What's interesting about some of the reporting on the pandemic is people are reporting wild animals walking down the street, in the middle of the street, lions and tigers and bears in some countries that they they didn't know were in the city. And they were in the city, many of them. We don't notice them until they come out. And now they've come out because, you know, early in the pandemic, and now perhaps again, we've gone inside and the cars have turned off and the engines aren't everywhere as much as they were. And when that happens, something is touched within us 
we have this sense of this is the way things ought to be. We are not alone in the universe. We are not alone in our neighborhoods. We're not alone in our cities. I think one of the, the things about this that is true is that when we realize we're not alone and that we're surrounded by a great conversation, we're surrounded and included in a much larger family than the human family. We turn to each other, perhaps, and are gentler. We turn to each other and recognize that we're animals too and that we need each other and that we need all of the family of animals. What is Habitats of the Heart? Uh, Martin Buber, the, the great philosopher, wrote a great essay uh, decades ago called I Am Thou. And it was uh, about people. And basically he said that you and I don't exist. What exists is between us. Relationship, that without that relationship, you and I don't really exist, even if it's just a few seconds. I write about how that happens with our animals, too, our pets, the wild animals we encounter, even if it's just for a few seconds. And I like to name things, so in Our Wild Calling, I named that the habitat of the heart. I think there are two habitats. There's the physical habitat that we spend so much time trying to protect, uh, as we should. And then there's this other habitat, the habitat of the heart, which we spend hardly any time and effort protecting and nurturing and teaching our children about and even noticing. But here's the deal. If one of those habitats goes, so does the other one. So I think this, this has a lot to do with the future of environmentalism and the future of conservation. The future with our relationship with the earth is to find again the power of that habitat of the heart that our ancestors knew and that we've been missing for a long time. We know the effect. I mean, for instance, the animal-assisted therapy. We know there are things going on that we don't realize. For instance, horses, which are often used in animal-assisted therapy, they turn out to have more facial expressions than dogs. It's just that we're not aware of them because they're so minute. Things are going on in their faces all the time that we tend not to notice. But we subconsciously notice that. And again, that's one of the reasons why Horses are used so much in animal-assisted therapy. Some of this is physical. Some of this is, is a kind of language. In our wild calling, I call that the oldest language. There's a lot going on among animals and among people that is under the surface, that is not verbal language alone. That's part of the habitat of the heart, I think, and that needs more science. That actually could be pinned down more with science. But then there's the spiritual aspect, this thing that we don't really understand. Talk a little bit about the research that is being done to challenge the notion of human exceptionalism. Well, that that science has been going on for 20 years at least, in which you know we're, we're no longer the only animal that uses tools. All kinds of animals use tools. It may be that the last thing that has not been shown that other animals do, that humans do, is think about the far future. There's a new body of evidence called prospection, a new body of, of research, that suggests that 
human beings are actually happier if they think more about the future. This is precisely the moment when we ought to think the most about the future. The, the research suggests that that will make us feel better. That will make us more likely to survive as a species. But all the other things seem to be falling away in terms of our specialness compared to other animals. In your book, you talked about the complicated relationship between humans and animals, such as domestic livestock, hunting, and the, and the abuse of animals. Can you talk about your idea of co-becoming? That's a phrase that I, or a term that I, I use. I don't know if I coined that. But there's another phrase, which is co-evolving, and that's a common term that people use. That over time, for instance, dogs, wolves first, and then dogs and human beings have co-evolved. We've affected each other. We've changed each other over the millennia. That's co-evolution. But co-becoming happens right now. Co-becoming happens with what I did with my own dog. Co-becoming happens with the animals in our neighborhood, the wild animals. And again, but that changes this, but perhaps on a smaller level and and not as lasting level as co-evolution. But it does. It creates who we are uh, and helps create who we are. And our relationship with those other animals changes them, too. They become different because of us. We become different because of them. So do you want to talk more about the, the healing powers and the health benefits of our relationship with animals, both domestic and wild? Well, the domestic research is, is clear, and there are good studies that really suggest that there are long-term health benefits to human beings that come from that association with our uh, domesticated pests. So that's been known for quite a while. And then there's the whole aspect of animal-assisted therapy, which may be the fastest-growing type of uh, psychological therapy in in, in our country at this point. So much is known on that, but as I said before, very little study has been done on the effect of wild animals on us. And I make the case in this book that when we notice, when we pay attention to the wild animals around us, When I walk through, we moved to the mountains, by the way, near San Diego. When I go on my afternoon walks and I have those encounters, have the eye contact with deer, it does something to me. I go on these walks and then I come back feeling much better than when I left. And it's not only because of the exercise. It's about these encounters I have with nature. In a culture that's kind of screaming for the rights of everyone and everything, How do you see the the rights of nature progressing and taking hold? Well, this is something I started writing about uh, 12 years ago. If the research is suggesting that this is fundamental to human development, particularly to child development, but also our development throughout our lives, psychological health, physical health, if it's that fundamental, that relationship with other animals, that's the definition of a human right, that we have... Uh, something that is fundamental to our survival, fundamental to our well-being. I hasten to add that this isn't just a right to harvest animals, to harvest nature, to exploit nature. This is actually a right to have a positive relationship with nature, particularly as kids, and the responsibility that comes with that. Ironically, I don't think people have much of a sense of of responsibility for anything 
unless they feel that they have some kind of right to an attachment to it. The, the, the human connection with the natural world, particularly for kids, will not be taken seriously. It'll be patted on the head. It'll be patronized and sent on its way until we think about it as a fundamental human right. I would add this also leads to the rights of nature itself. And that's a whole other conversation that is probably more controversial, but David Orr, who's um, probably the father of environmental literacy, who is a friend who's written about this, he believes that the human right to nature is the most fundamental right of all human rights, because unless we have that connection to nature, none of the other rights really exist. Our survival depends entirely on that. So how does the future look? Well, um, I like to think about Planet Hope. I like to think about the need, particularly right now, when everything seems so dark, to liberate ourselves from this state of despair we've been in long before the pandemic began. I've asked people all over the world, but particularly in the United States, to tell me the images they see in their mind right now when they think about the far future. Almost always, images that rise in their mind look a lot like Blade Runner, Mad Max, at best, The Hunger Games. Uh, it's, it's a post-apocalyptic world in which not only nature but love has been diminished. If those are the images that come to people's mind first when they think about the future, then we're in more trouble than we know. We've been failing at that. We've been trapped in this dystopian trance. It kind of feels good there. You know? We're used to that despair, and it's too damn easy. The opposite of that is hope, but not blind hope. The opposite of that is imaginative hope. We have to begin to conjure new images. We have to begin to conjure images, as I've tried to do in these books, of cities that become engines of biodiversity. You know, you've interviewed Doug Ptolemy, who's one of my heroes, and his idea of a homegrown national park, the idea that we can change our yards into native species and bring back biodiversity to our cities through strengthening the food chain in our cities, that we don't have to wait for government. I've suggested that we go a step farther and talk about a worldwide homegrown park. You know, have kids in Sri Lanka in classrooms on the Internet connecting with kids in San Diego and saying, these are the animals, these are the creatures we saw come home. Why can't we see cities as the engines of biodiversity instead of the enemy? There's a lot of talk now about planting vast forests, uh, not the kind of forestry forests that are monocultures, but biodiverse forests that will serve first as carbon sinks. That helps with climate change. Uh, but also as uh, new habitat for biodiversity and also places that people can go for their own mental health and physical health. And by doing that, we increase the biodiversity, and that reduces the risk of zoonotic diseases passing from animals to people. Uh, that's a different kind of approach to the future. Those are different images than we carry around usually about how the future looks. One other thing is that uh, there were these images that came out of Australia that many of us saw. I'm sure you saw them too. During the great fires in Australia, 
During those fires, we saw images on TV and YouTube and elsewhere of good human beings who had lost everything. They'd lost their houses. They were going into the forest and into the fields with the clothes on their back, sometimes riding bicycles, taking water, you know, to koala, to the wildlife there to save them. That's the best of who we are. Those were very moving images. But when I was watching them, it occurred to me, what's it going to take? What's it going to take to move people from data to action, from studies to action, from information to action on climate change, on biodiversity collapse? We have the data on all of those things. We've had it. But they, it doesn't seem to move us to action. Uh, there's a guy, in, a philosopher, an eco-philosopher in Australia that I know, and I have a lot of admiration for him, Glenn Albrecht. And uh, he says that only a, a deep emotional change of the heart is going to move us to action. And he gives us an example. The great social movements that have moved people from information to action such as civil rights movement to a degree, gay rights, uh, feminism, they've all been based on relationship, on love. And, you know, that's been missing from the environmental movement. It's all about the data. That science is absolutely essential, but it's not doing the trick to move us really to the action we need. I think only two things move us there. One is, as Glenn says, love, a sense of deep, deep attachment that begins in childhood. And we have to recognize and, and find that again as adults toward nature, toward the animals around us, towards all the nature, all of the non-other than human life forms. We need to find that love. The second thing is what I mentioned before, which is imaginative hope. We need to imagine. We need to begin to create pictures in our cultural mind of a great future, a great nature-rich future. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Richard Louvre. And if you want to learn more about our relationships to animals, do read this wonderful book, Our Wild Calling. And I hope you will share Nature Revisited with friends, family, and colleagues. And subscribe to Nature Revisited on your favorite podcast server. You can also follow us on Instagram, YouTube, or our website, nordenproductions.com. That's Norden, N-O-O-R-D-E-N, productions.com. If you would like to share your thoughts or comments, please send them to us through our website contact page, and we will share them on our Instagram page. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, remember, we are nature. Thank you.